Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Uh, joining us now, Associate Economics Professor at the University of Manitoba, Fletcher Baragar. Fletcher, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. I've got a few things I want to talk to you about. I know we didn't ask you about this in setting up the interview, but we were just talking about this behavioral scientist uh, who is suggesting a lottery to get people uh, to take the COVID-19 vaccine if they're reluctant to take it. And I've seen some say that, you know, uh, financial help uh, through the pandemic should maybe be tied to getting the vaccine. You don't get the finances. You don't get the help from the government unless you take the vaccine. Any any thoughts on that uh, from an economic perspective? Well, I haven't really uh, reflected uh, on that. But I, my sense is that, I mean, obviously, um to protect the population, you want as many people to take the vaccine as possible. Right. But uh, for the short term, at least, uh, there's not we don't have the supplies or the distribution capability to get everybody who wants a vaccine right now get that vaccine to them right away. So there has to be the prioritization, and I think looking at the most vulnerable population and uh, healthcare workers or frontline workers, other essential workers, that seems to make sense in terms of priorities. And I suspect that eventually over time, uh, if the vaccines uh, uh, prove to be effective as more and more people take them, that uh, just the demonstration effect will persuade a lot of people. I think rather than, um, uh, you know, checking on people's, uh, uh, whether they're receiving other things or putting carrots and sticks together, just adds another layer of bureaucracy and complication to it. I would just say, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, you prioritize those who need it most, then you go to the uh, uh, general population, and then when we get to that next stage, we can sort of see what the numbers are, uh, perhaps how many are left, and uh, what them might be needed to persuade the last few. But I think at this stage, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, additional restrictions or uh, carrots and sticks, I think just adds more... um, uh, more problems, more administrative work to uh, uh, what is already a massive uh, program. Yeah, sure. And fair enough, right? I mean, uh, I guess if we get to the point where we're not quite to herd immunity, then maybe we look at getting creative. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think you make some really good points there. Um, the provincial finances are in a bit of a mess, not as big a mess as uh, we thought they were going to be in at this point. The province is uh, projecting a $2 billion deficit at this point for the fiscal year that wraps up uh, in March. Um, revenues are down about a billion dollars. Thank goodness for some federal money. Um, that's helping uh, make things not look quite as red as they were going to look. Your thoughts? I think that's uh, quite quite right. Uh, uh, federal transfers and additional federal assistance uh, are a big part of the story. Manitoba has been benefiting from increased federal transfer payments really over the last two or three years, and that certainly helped the provincial uh, bottom line in terms of the budget. But uh, for the, fiscal, the current fiscal year that we're in, uh, those additional federal transfers are a huge part of the story. So I think that's big. Nonetheless, we're still looking at, as you say, probably around a $2 billion deficit, uh, depending on you know how long and how severe the, this current lockdown for the second wave is. But, you know, so... Um, uh, so we'll be looking at 
uh, what those numbers are going to be when spring starts to turn to summer. But I think that's a pretty good ballpark estimate right now. I think that's appropriate. I mean, we clearly know that there's been uh, a real hit to the economy and that all sorts of different types of businesses in some sectors way more than others, as well as different individuals and households have, have uh, some have done fairly well, but others have been really hard hit. And so at this stage, um, the various support programs that different levels of government can provide, I think is really essential and crucial to avoid making a bad situation work and making sure that people can sort of, you know, for the time being, just keep treading water. Once we're out of this wave, let's say, so hopefully this this second wave will be the last big wave that we'll have and that the vaccine uh, will be uh, effective going forward, then looking at the years ahead, I see that there's going to be a need, of course, to uh, pull that deficit um, down from the $2 billion mark. But uh, the political and economic challenge is going to be how much and how fast and how quickly. And then uh, when you take a look at a timeline, then the question is going to be, well, what's going to be the right mix of increases on the revenue sides and perhaps uh, constraints on the on the spending side? My own sense is that what we really want to see, first of all, is uh, clear signs of a strong and sustainable economic recovery. So if you try to uh, turn too much attention to eliminating the deficit in the short run, you're starting to then, I think, jeopardize the strength and the sustainability of that recovery. So uh, the first thing right now is uh, maintain the status quo. Let's try to avoid any other businesses or households uh, getting into severe financial trouble. Once that's behind us, then we need to focus on sustaining that recovery. And then once that's behind us, I think we need a multi-year plan of gradually building up the fiscal resources. And I think on the I think the key thing, in my opinion, is that we need to then start having a broader discussion about uh, on the revenue side, and that primarily involves taxes. My sense, and now I'm not a politician, but my sense is that Manitobans in general are uh, uh, agree with a general point that this is a uh, a universal pandemic. It's affecting everybody in the province. We know it's serious. We know it's severe. We know it's costly. We know what has to be done. We're prepared to do it. We know that's not going to come uh, uh, cheap. Uh, it's important to do it now, do it fast, do it well, do it adequately. And uh, the bills will come in the future. And when the bills come in the future, my sense is that although raising taxes is never a popular move, or rarely a popular move, I think that these circumstances and recognizing what we're going through right now creates the uh, the ground, uh, a basis for uh, a sensible discussion about uh, revenue raising and taxes and how to share that uh, fiscal burden uh, more equitably uh, throughout the province. Yeah, you talked about getting the economy back on track. I kind of wanted to get on to that with you. Um, you know, we, we heard about the expansion at Centerport yesterday, and, and I wonder if when we get through COVID, or at least the worst of it, I wonder if Manitoba's not going to be positioned better than most of the other provinces in that we've got a diversified economy. Uh, it kind of chugs along, right? There's no booms, there's no busts. I I, I like Manitoba's chances in the future when it comes to growing the economy and, and getting things back to where they need to be? So do I, actually. Uh, I think that you, you hit it uh, right on the mark when you referred to the 
diversity of the Manitoba economy. That's been a strength of Manitoba. It's a, it's a quiet strength because you don't get all the uh, excitement of a massive economic boom and, and the strong growth. Uh, but then on the other hand, you don't usually get, uh, in Manitoba, we don't get the same sort of uh, tumultuous downturn uh, that uh, our neighbors to the west have experienced, say, when energy prices collapse. So it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, steady as she goes, so to speak. Uh, so that provides a nice economic base. And uh, there's been certainly ups and downs in uh, the national and global economies prior to this. Nothing quite like COVID, but uh, nonetheless, we in those previous ones, we've we've hung in there pretty well, and uh, I don't see any reason why that can't be the case again. Certain sectors of the Manitoba economy, I mean, agriculture is a very big sector, and that's a sector that's been doing fairly well. Uh, obviously, climatic factors are one of the big factors that can play a role there, and we've had a, a couple of good years. This last year has been really quite good uh, for uh, Manitoba crops, and prices have remained fairly strong in agricultural markets, so that provides... Uh, you know, that's an important sector for Manitoba, and that provides a good basis for uh, all sorts of spin-off effects and generating incomes and uh, demand throughout the Manitoba, Manitoba economy. So that's part of it, but also even things like uh, some Manitoba manufacturing. We've got plastics manufacturing and, and you know, even things like buses. Uh, Flyers have been doing reasonably well going through. whole range of food processing is, of course, very important. So all of these are are positive uh, uh, features of the Manitoba economy. For sure, there are going to be sectors that are going to need uh, uh, assistance and perhaps some long-term readjustments. I mean, passenger air traffic is one. I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out in the next 12 months, for example. Yeah. Uh, we know that a lot of the job losses and, and revenue losses have been in sectors like uh, accommodation and recreational services uh, until things really open up and people are uh, at ease traveling again and and mingling socially uh, those sectors are going to be really struggling so um, but that's not unique to Manitoba I mean, that's uh, of course right across the uh, the country and beyond uh, but uh, so when the recovery happens, there's still going to be some sectors that are going to be left behind. And so I think that uh, that becomes important for uh, for policymakers at all levels of government to try to identify those sectors, their position in the Manitoba economy, and then sort of see what can be done, whether this is a temporary thing that, uh, uh, you know, a year down the road when people are largely vaccinated that uh, maybe we can get back to pre-pandemic times or whether there's been enough uh, uh, change that those industries themselves might have to go some through some major mm -hmm. structural adjustment. A lot of questions yeah. there and a lot of concerns. Yes, yeah, for sure. Fletcher, I'm right out of time, but thanks a lot for this. Great conversation. My pleasure. Pleased to do it. The Mayor of Kenora joins us now, Dan Rayner. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. Thank you for jumping on here for a couple of minutes. We were talking to the uh, head of your Chamber of Commerce there in Kenora. Jeff Creer uh, had him on, and, and he says, uh, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. What about you? Are you seeing more Manitobans, more Winnipeggers there doing shopping because they can't shop here, or they're coming there to visit, or are you seeing cottagers hanging out in the in the community? What can you tell us? Well, it's interesting. I think because of the situation, we probably look more closely at license plates than we normally do. Um, I'm I'm really not seeing a significant increase 
uh, we have to recognize that there are, Kenora right now is booming in terms of construction. So there's a lot of tradesmen with Manitoba license plates that are currently working in town. They've been here for most of the summer. Uh, students are starting to come back from school. And the reality is, is you know, we people that live in Falcon Lake, West Hawk, this is where they do their shopping. This is where they go for their medical appointments just because it, it's a lot closer proximity. So I, I've heard all the anecdotal evidence, but I really haven't witnessed or experienced um, a lot of different things that are going on in the community. I, I've heard yeah. those stories, but I really mm-hmm. haven't as much. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where it began with us too, right? We were getting emails from people. I'll, I'll just read one here from somebody in Kenora. Um, if your premier in Manitoba is so concerned about travelers coming into that city, Winnipeg, or surrounding areas and potentially transmitting the virus, why does he not do something about the holiday shoppers and cottagers coming from Manitoba to Kenora? We, and then in brackets, Kenora, are just as worried about the virus as much as anyone else. But, you know, Mr. Mayor, you make a good point. I think we're all a little more aware of license plates from out of province around us, and they may have been there in the past, but we're noticing them now. I would say that's more so. People are, uh, uh, there's a, obviously an air of apprehension. Uh, we've been very fortunate. Uh, until this morning, we had been back down to zero active cases. We had one this morning in the Kenora area. So obviously, it really has not, if people are traveling and if there is a larger number, it certainly at this point has not um, reflected it in additional cases that are occurring in our community the reality is is there's nothing either between you know uh, dr rusin or our medical officer health that's in, in the northwest the, the the recommendation is you know you shouldn't be traveling but there's nothing that prohibits it so if, if you were a cottager and you wanted to come down to your cottage in clearwater bay for, for the christmas season you know there's really nothing that prohibits you you just take the proper steps to protect yourself and protect those around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It, it's not that it's not allowed. I just think people in communities, when they see people from other communities coming into their, uh, you know, town or city or, or whatever, um, you know, like the email I just read for you, they're concerned about transmission of the virus as much as we are here. And, and I understand, um, you know, what the emailer is saying, but I think probably the reality is more, uh, you know, closer to what you're saying. So you you obviously are doing something right in Kenora when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID-19. Um, what are the restrictions like there? I'm just curious. Is retail allowed to operate at a lower capacity? How are things happening in Kenora right now with very few cases? You know, everything's open, and we've been very fortunate. We, uh, we went up a, a lower or a heightened level probably two and a half weeks ago because all of a sudden we had 10 cases. So, but it really hasn't impacted it. It's been busy downtown. And I, and I think what we're seeing is, you know, our restaurants are all open. People are really taking advantage of takeout. All our downtown stores are open. Uh, there's nothing really closed at this point. Things like the arena, the pool, the fitness center, we're just um, operating at reduced numbers based on those directions from the health unit. But right now you wouldn't, the community is very active and people are, but everybody's following the proper protocols. 
Mm-hmm. We're jealous, Mr. Mayor. We wish we could have that here. But I, I think that what happened here with us is we got to a point where there were just so many cases out there that even now, after several weeks of code red restrictions, the numbers have plateaued a bit, uh, but they are still way too high. And so, unfortunately, it's going to be a very different Christmas uh, for us here in, in Winnipeg and Manitoba this year. Yeah, and, you know, I follow the numbers, obviously, because we're so close. We're, we're more related to what happens in Manitoba than what happens in southern Ontario. So it, it's, I, I feel for the province, and I feel for, you know, those healthcare workers, because, like you say, the numbers, I believe, active cases are over 5,000. There's over 40 in ICU. It's just, it, it's difficult for everybody because, you know, we're going into the ninth, tenth month. It starts, it's difficult for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Mayor, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. And I hope things settle down in Manitoba and, yeah. you know, everybody will be a lot safer and, and we can get back to a, a more normal life, whatever that's going to look like in the future. Here, here. All the best over the holidays. Thank you and take care. Bye now. Barbara Bowes, the president of Legacy Bowes Group. Barbara, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks a lot for doing this. I've got a lot of a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. Let me read this story uh, for you. We've been teeing this up, and then I want to get your initial thoughts, and then we'll get into it a bit. Um, so, uh, business expert predicts nine to five work week will become the three to two after the pandemic. Uh, here's the story. It might be hard to imagine a world of working in an office nine to five again once the pandemic is over. Harvard professor Ashley Willens is predicting that companies may let employees work from home two or more days per week, with some opt- opting for three days in office, two days remote, and then two days off. Or, in other words, a three-two-two work week. Uh, it's thought this will give employees guidelines to follow, but also empowers them to choose the schedule that works best for their lives. Uh, your initial reaction to the three-two-two work week from this Harvard prof? Well, I totally agree with him. I really think that that's going to move forward as the way we are working. Now, Hal, it's kind of interesting because over twenty years ago. Large accounting companies who've got all these young people out at uh, different workplaces, but they hold an office for them in a cubicle, they've learned already that they could do this some 20 years ago, but didn't catch on in terms of other businesses. With uh, COVID, we've proven that we can work this way. And actually, the shift went really quite quickly. So number one, I see it staying. Number two, it does give both individuals a flexibility, But it also gives the employer flexibility because if you don't have to have someone in the office, you can hire someone from Timbuktu, I suppose, with the talent and skills that that you want. So you can build different different employee, um, what would you call it, uh, photos or pictures of all of these kinds of workers. But you know what? I mean, it sounds really good, but there's still a couple of challenges that go with that. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a sec because I know you put a bit of thought into this. Um, I like the mix of, you know, two or three days in the office, two or three days at home, and then the weekend, your normal two-day weekend. I like the mix because while some people love working at home, there are things about working at home that I like 
and there are some things that I hate. I think I'm a little more social of a being, and I like to be around other people, especially in this industry. It's sort of a creative industry. I think it's better to be around people, to bounce stuff off of people, but I do like the mix. I think I could get into the the 322 or the 232 work week. Yeah, and it's a really good idea, but you also have to watch out for, and let's say we put you on a 322, so you're always seeing the same people all the same time. I would mix it up so that you get to meet all the other people that you work with. So it's, it can be more flexible in terms of a schedule. So actually, we did that with our COVID. We had, and when we were bringing people back to the office, we had a group of people coming in, you know, three, two, two, one week, and another group, three, two, two, another week. It worked really well. Um, mm-hmm. But when you talk about that socialization, you want to be able to try to socialize with everybody. So I think, you know, somebody better be darn good at scheduling, but I, I see it coming. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so get into the challenges, because as you point out, this isn't perfect. Well, I think one of the challenges from the employee's perspective is you're going to have to be much better at technology than we have before. Um, number one, you, you don't have anybody that you can just call, and here's a good example. My printer broke down at home. Um, I have to rely on my spouse in order to fix it, whereas if you're at the office, you've got someone just down the hall that can, you know, can fix it. So there's some issues you know, like that. From the employer's perspective, the big issue and a lot of talk in the HR field, how do you continue to build a corporate cohesive culture when your employees are all dispersed? Mm-hmm. So there's going to have to be a lot more effort to do that. And then the other thing you said, you know, you were saying that you, you don't like the isolation. You like the socialization. And it's very true. A lot of employees are having difficulty with the isolation. Therefore, mental health issues are starting to spring up. So new obligations on the part of employers in terms of managing their employees and looking after them from a point of view of, you know, creating a family of employees. It's going to be a lot harder. I can guarantee it. Yeah. Well, for example, we're not having a Christmas party this year, but we just today got a Christmas video, right, of a bunch of people at the station, a bunch of people working at home. And, you know, it is a challenge trying to build that team, right? Because, you know, a successful workplace is essentially a team. How do you build that team that, you know, make that team cohesive and efficient? Yep. Uh, and that that's the big problem, too. We we just had a retirement, and so we had every single employee who are, are all working at home using their iPhones to create a video, a goodbye video, and we put it, you know, somebody placed there, put it all together. Well, guess what? I couldn't get voice on my, my iPhone, so I have a picture. So, again, it's the technology. But the extra effort by employers in order to create that gelling of a team is, is, is you know, really going to be um, – going to be not a problem but a challenge for sure a whole new way a whole new way of working right yeah yeah absolutely and you know what listen if there wasn't a pandemic and we weren't worried about our health maybe i'd be okay working at home like this every day i don't know maybe it's the stress and the anxiety that comes from covid19 that makes me not 100 percent happy being here at home maybe under different circumstances uh, i would be happy we've talked about this before uh, we talked this week about this new uh, Canada Revenue Agency write-off for home office. Uh, just me, and I'm not complaining because, as I've said many times, I'm happy to be working. Many people want to be and aren't. I'm happy to be working. But I had to spend more on my Internet. I spend way more on my printer. 
I mean, my home office expenses have gone up significantly. And I think if people are going to work at home or, you know, if, if a, say, a company is going to save uh, some money on a lease or rent because they don't need a big space, th- that has to be figured out and shared, right? Absolutely. It's totally inappropriate to send an employee home and expect them to put their laptop on an ironing board or the dining room table. You know, it might, might work for a week or two, but we're already into 10 and 11 months. Mm-hmm. And if you are going into a permanent hoteling situation or 322, then you have to be able to ensure that your employee has the right equipment to do the job. Now, I do know some companies are allowing a $500, um, not, it's not a bonus, I shouldn't use the word bonus, giving $500 yeah. to an employee to go and buy the equipment that is right from, for them. You know, in our situation at Legacy Bose, we had, we had some of our employees come to this office and get their chairs because they they have good chairs at work and they don't have yep. a good chair at home. So, no, I agree with you 100%. So those are different things that employers better start looking at for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting on one of the first things I did was I, I phoned Brent Williamson and I said, Brent, I'm coming to get my chair because I just knew that I wasn't going to last very long in my chairs here. It's fine when you're on the computer for 10 or 15 minutes, but if I'm working big, long days, uh, I had to be on a better chair. So, yeah, and, and our, you know, our company, Chorus, the CGOB Global, has been fantastic about that. Again, I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out that, you know, in some cases – um, people, if they're expected to work at home or going forward, it's like, yeah, you're working from home. That's got to all be figured out. That has to be part of the conversation on both sides. Yeah, you know what, Hal, there's even little things like lights. Like I, I've got one bedroom made into an office, and I've got a desk, and I took my chair from work. But I'm finding the light is a problem. I don't have the light that I have at work. So we're just trying to figure that out now. My husband put up a stronger light bulb, which I'm not really sure helps. But, you know, there's little things that make your workplace comfortable that we're Mm going to have to start helping employees to deal with. Yeah, quick shout-out here, Barb. I don't mean to take your time, but a quick shout-out. I've got a unit that allows me to record phone calls at home, right, so I can do pre, I can pre-record I interviews. Well, that thing crapped out on me a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was, I'm like, oh, no, what am I going to do? Well, my buddy Al Castell, who's on the show on a regular basis over at Alpha Technologies, I mean, the, you know, these guys are, he said, oh, we can just throw an app on your computer. And so now I'm able to, so there, the technology, you talk about struggling, with technology if you can figure it out there's lots of cool technology out there that can make life a lot easier yeah and there's another app too that when you are uh, recording that it will then write it all out for you yeah so it's great yeah. for you know interviews and minutes and all kinds of things like every day there's mm-hmm. something new yeah yeah very cool stuff hey i want to ask you uh, quickly here before we run out of time tom cruise uh he lost it on the set of the new mission impossible movie i guess some of the people on the set weren't following covid19 protocols and he lost it and uh i personally thought you know what good for you if people aren't following the rules there's a lot on the line here people are working they should be thankful and and not you know skirting the protocols and breaking the rules but it reminded me and, and us here at CJOB of, you know, kind of losing it at work, right? I mean, we've all, maybe not like that, <laughs> but we've all done it. We've all, you know, lost our temper or, or uh, flared up. And I was just curious from an HR perspective, when something like that happens, and it's happening, I'll bet, more now than ever because of the stress and anxiety around COVID-19, when it happens, how do you fix it? How do you move forward? Well, in this case, like I didn't hear his uh, 
you know, his exact words, but I certainly read the text that uh, was, was yeah. distributed. You know, and he says it's a gold standard, and, and but his behavior doesn't reflect that. And we have to remember that, you know, under harassment legislation, yelling, screaming, ranting, threatening their jobs, even if you do it once, can be considered harassment. So, you know, he engaged in psychological safety issues for his workers, so he's he's equally as bad. And and I would, uh, if I was him, I him. If I was his boss, I would really certainly try to calm him down and trying to get him to reflect on what exactly he's doing. You can't afford to throw a temper tantrum mm-hmm. like well, that. Well, or in or in this case, he would probably be the boss, maybe not in title, but he is because he's the big star of the movie, and it's probably yeah. his studio that's making the movie. So there's another scenario: he's the boss, and he loses it on the employees. Right, and in that situation, I can tell you very few people would want to do anything about it. They're afraid of that boss. People are afraid of him. So what happens in the long run? This is probably not the first time, too, by the way. And so he's probably got very high turnover, and he probably has to pay a lot for his employees because no one will stay. So there's a lot of background um, things that happen as a result of his behavior. This is not a one-off. Mm-hmm. It just happened. So. It, it, there's there's certainly difficulty there, and I I believe he was in the wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think the message was a good one. I I uh, I agree that you know, hey, if you're not following the rules, you need to follow the rules. Now, how he did it, yeah, uh, uh, not not the best way, and uh, you know, so uh, there's sort of a couple ways of looking at it. Hey, Barb, I gotta let you go, but thanks a lot for this great conversation. Yeah, well, just one more thing. Your mother yeah. would say, two wrongs don't make a right." True. Yes, absolutely. Thank <laughs> you, Barb. Barbara Bowes, president of Legacy Bowes Group, joining us here. All right, let's bring in our uh, regular Thursday afternoon guest here, Carolyn Klassen at Conexus Counseling. ConnexusCounseling.c. Carolyn, good afternoon. Hey, how so good to talk to you. And let me congratulate you on the air. I've already done this by email, but congratulations on being a grandma. Uh, it doesn't seem like you should be a grandmother, but congrats. Well, I'll take that. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be a grandmother. This little guy's going to call me Oma. Oma, nice. Okay, I was going to ask you if it's going to be grandma or what it's going to be. So, um, and, and, you know, the challenges of this pandemic, right? I mean, obviously, great news, exciting, but yet you have not been able to hold your new grandson. It's one weird thing where last night I drove over at the end of my work day and um, I brought them some cookies and left them on the doorstep and I put on my mittens and um, I just gazed at him through the window and he's adorable, he's beautiful and there was a pane of glass between us and as disappointing and as hard as that is, I also wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad everything went okay because, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic and uh, hospitals, as we're going to find out uh, after the news at 3 with Darlene Jackson from the Manitoba Nurses Union, I mean, hospitals are a, are a crazy place right now. They are. Uh, and so, yes, we're so grateful that this little guy was born healthy, that mom and babe are doing okay, that my son could be with them the entire stay. Uh, they had, you know, they were very careful ahead of time to make sure that that could happen. Uh, because we understand that not only do we want them to be safe, but we want staff and other patients to be safe as well. And um, we that's nothing that we take for granted these days. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you told me that you were going to be a grandma and you said, hey, any advice, uh, you know, see if your listeners have any advice for me. So I've been putting it out this afternoon. And you know what? It's it's sort of uh, all the advice has been very similar. Let me read a few text messages here to you. Uh, Mike in Manitoba says, Hal, the only advice I have for Carolyn about being a grandparent is for her to spoil that grandchild and enjoy how karma comes around. And another one like that, um, Hal, she has to abide by the grandparents' code, spoil the heck out of that grandchild. <laughs> Penalties are severe if you don't. And one more here, congratulations, Carolyn. No sage advice, but say goodbye to your heart. That little one will steal it this from a new grandfather. So there you go. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, my heart has been stolen. It's remarkable how quickly you fall in love and how much. It's kind of fun because it's all the beauty and all the love without losing any of the sleep, right? So mm-hmm. I, I have just so been enjoying this little guy. Um, his parents let me FaceTime with him every day, and I watch him. Babies can make a million faces, and each one is more beautiful than the last, and he just makes me laugh. Oh, I'm happy for you. Um, let, let me ask you something. We were talking to uh, Barbara Bowes, and she was, we were talking about working at home, and she was saying how she is, you know, from time to time challenged by technology. And then I read the Christopher Walken story. He's 77. Uh, he was doing a Zoom interview with Stephen Colbert on The Late Show, and somebody had to come over and, and set the computer up because he's never owned a computer. He's never sent an email, a text message. Um, and and I he, he admitted, he says, you know what, technology just has, has kind of passed me by. And I, I think, and sometimes we'll talk about, you know, text messages and emails here, and I'll, I'll get, uh, I've, I, when I was at the station, I, once a week at least, I would get one or two letters in the mail, snail mail, and it would be, Hal, I love your show, you were talking about such and such, or you had the recipe, and I, you know, I'm not on the internet. So talk a little bit about technology, and, and um, yes, I think it's for mostly older people, but listen, I know younger people that, uh, I said to Jackie, I, I've had nothing but problems with my new phone for weeks and weeks, and it finally just died. It crashed, and I got a new phone, which I'm happy about, and they took care of it, which is great. But I said to Jackie, I'm going back to a flip phone. She goes, well, you can't do any of your work on a flip phone. I said, I don't care. I'm going to flip it and make phone calls. That's all I want to do. Um, so, I mean, technology. All the technology <laughs> right. right. Technology can be frustrating at the best of times, even for people who think, I, I kind of got this. Well, and I think sometimes I get used to a piece of technology and I'm finally figuring like I'm comfortable with it and then they do an upgrade and I have to get used to the whole new thing again. So technology can be frustrating. There's lots of, it's more reliable now than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago, but there's still glitches and there's still problems. And what I noticed how in some, something that you said right now that was really quite beautiful is you get hundreds of texts and emails a week, but you remember the one or two emails or one or two letters that you get by snail mail, right? Like mm-hmm. those, there's something about seeing paper and seeing pen where somebody with their own hand wrote something out and sent it to you and it had a stamp. And, you know, I've had to work with my kids in their mid-teens sometimes about this is how you address an envelope because there's no need to do that anymore. And when people remember how beautiful old school is where you pick up the phone and you call somebody rather than just endless texting back and forth or endless emails back and forth, when you pick up the phone and call somebody, when you write something on a card and put it in an envelope, 
with a stamp and you walk it to the mailbox, that says something to people that is quite beautiful. And I think um, as the more we are reliant on technology, the more we realize how precious some of that old school, just good old-fashioned regular communication was and how we long for it and how beautiful it is. And uh, as lovely as it is to speak to family on Zoom, I'll drive across town and stand on the other side of the glass to see him in real life than to just yeah. look at him on computer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I was also talking to Barbos about Tom Cruise losing it on uh, the people on his uh, Mission Impossible set. Uh, he's doing this movie. Some of them weren't following COVID-19 protocols, and he lost it. And we talked to Barb about, you know, in a workplace, how damaging that can be. Uh, I kind of agree with his message. If people weren't following the rules, he's saying, come on, man, like, get with it here. You're working, and all you got to do is follow the rules, and you're putting everything in jeopardy here. Um, but did you have any thoughts about Tom Cruise uh, screaming at uh, the people on his on his film set? Okay, well, first of all, full confession here, he was my high school movie star crush, right? So it's pretty Okay, hard well, there you go. You know, negative about Tom Cruise in any way, because, you know, his feelings go pretty deep in, when you're <laughs> yeah. in high school. Right. Uh, but I think what you're noticing is that although the message was bang on, the message, the message got lost in the way he delivered it. And, yeah. and not only to us as we heard it, because it's so loud and it's so harsh and so abusive, that you can only just imagine how it actually permanently changes the relationship that he has with the people that he yelled at and the people that overheard it that were a part of that because he has now made the workplace unsafe. And can you imagine those guys trying to give creative ideas, trying to um, brainstorm and say, how about we do it this way, boss? Like, they're not going to do that, right? Nobody's going to – everybody's going to walk on eggshells around this guy now. And he has wrecked it not only for them – but also for himself. And I think we have to recognize that when you lose it like that, um, that it you, everybody loses. Everybody loses, including the person who is delivering the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with his message uh, and the reason for him getting upset. But, yeah, the, unfortunately, the delivery was, was not right. And, and, that's, uh, and, and then there's a whole, you know, power structure element to it too, right? I mean, he's a star. He's the big boss. You know, he probably gets away with this, should he? I mean, there's there's so much to talk about here. Um, but I want to talk uh, for a couple of minutes here about the optimism that we're feeling, and then we'll take a break and come back and carry on our, our Thursday afternoon conversation here with Carolyn Klassen. But, um, Carolyn, you know, we saw the first um, injections, the first vaccine um, the first vaccinations yesterday, they're continuing today. They'll continue tomorrow, 900 now, 900 again in a few weeks. It's not that many, but we're, we've been through, you know, nine or 10 months of this, uh, pandemic. And I think we're all feeling somewhat hopeful about this new vaccine. Well, I've been speaking um, a whole lot to uh, different businesses, uh, different departments lately um, about trying to get through this winter when we are in this middle third and it feels so bleak. And it was quite fun as I've been doing these talks to now this week be able to start saying there is officially a light at the end of the tunnel, right? We always knew that there might be something, but now there, it's, the light is pretty small and it's pretty off far in the distance, but there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. And somehow when there is, that, that gives us concrete hope and it makes a difference for us. And I think it's putting a little bit of gas in our tanks and we're trying to mitigate it and not get too excited about it because 
we don't want to put our take our foot off the gas of all the mitigation and all the safety that we do now to keep our numbers down because we cannot yet rely on the vaccine. We just know that it's there. And knowing that it's there, oh, gosh, that feels good, hey? Yeah, it really does. And And let's hope that we can, you know, get it in everybody's arms as quickly as possible and and move past this and uh but but it's uh, it's a ways off absolutely but it is nice seeing that light at the end of the tunnel as you say Hal Anderson Afternoons the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts